0: Welcome to episode 30 of Miles and Pints, the Travel and Beer Podcast. I'm Derek Dye. And I'm Jeff Brownson, and together we're drinking our way through this amazing world, one pint at a time. Whether you love to travel, you love a cold local beer, or you just can't get enough of either, you're listening to the right podcast. That's what we're here to talk about. Our guest today is Eli Kayer from Urban Farm
1: Fermentary. Where they produce not one, not two, not three, but five different types of fermented beverages. This episode is the second half of our interview with Eli. If you missed the first part, be sure to go back and listen to episode 29 first so you'll know where we're picking up in the conversation.
0: Before we get to that interview, though, let's take a minute to thank our regular listeners. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. If you haven't already, Click that button to subscribe to the show so you won't miss anything we have coming down the line.
1: And now let's get to the good part. Sit back, relax, crack open your favorite brew, and enjoy our chat with Eli.
2: We grew into this 10,000 square foot facility over the course of like, you know, almost a decade. And it's, um, you know, it's very organic (laughs) in that way.
1: You had mentioned before that uh, in order to do the cider, you had to get a winery license. Yeah, I think so it was. If they when you're doing this wide variety of products, I know it differs from state to state, and it's. And I've always thought it's weird that you have to have winery to do cider because it's more like a beer and process. But so you have, you're doing beers, so you have a brewery license. You're yep. doing the cider, so you have a winery license. Do so you have to have a separate license
2: for the mead or the kombucha? So. I started with my, my first company again was a meadery and so I had familiar I was familiar with starting a winery. And so that's what the UFF started as and that was that made us made it possible for us to produce cider which is Technically a low-alcohol apple wine—that's the way they look at it. Then mead, which is obviously a honey wine, and kombucha at the time because they didn't know what it was. And so those are the first three products that we made, right? So
1: you could just kind of sneak kombucha in because they hadn't regulated it yet because they didn't know.
2: Well, there was actually a situation that happened where the state of Maine actually there was there was somebody who was trying to start a kombucha company, and they actually. Were, I, were renting space for me initially. And they went to the state and said, we want to produce kombucha here. And the state was like, well, what's that? And so they went to Whole Foods and pulled samples of all the kombuchas that were on the shelves. And it come to find out the kombuchas range between one and 3% alcohol on the shelves, which is, and they were selling it Whole as a non-alcoholic <laughs> product, so Fully illegal. Uh, and so, you know, basically kombucha got pulled from the shelves for like six months, nationally. And I'm, like, watching this, and I'm starting a cidery, meadery, fermentery concept. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to ferment everything, and, and I knew about kombucha. And I thought, well, if they're going to treat this as an alcohol, then I recognize, I know there's, there's alcohol in it. Anything below, above 0.5% alcohol is alcoholic in the U.S. And, and so I ran a couple batches, came in at 1% alcohol, 1.5% alcohol. So I just applied as a winery because I had a wine license. They didn't know any better, so they accepted it. So it was the first winery in the US to get a license to produce kombucha. And then we started running it like that. And you know it's, tr- it's the truest kombucha that I know that's out there, but it's also very challenging to sell as an alcohol because until now, nobody was really thinking there was alcohol in it. So all the companies out there you know twisted their formulas and, and claimed that they were non-alcoholic again and then nobody really looked at it ever again. So, so nobody's been looking to see if it's truly alcoholic or not. I know it is. And so we just never (laughs) changed. I just, that's how we do it. And then a few years ago, it became clear that you could benefit tax-wise to have it as a brewery. Thankfully, I had brought my brewery on board and created that to make the grain ferments. And we switched everything over to the brewery. So we actually can produce kombucha as a brewery or a winery. It's less... Whatever you want to call it, uh, whatever you, you, want you want to call to it I don't it. really care <laughs> basically it's a fermented beverage there's a little bit of alcohol in it and and you know that's that's where it is. I was just very curious of. I know
1: people jump through a lot of hoops even to get those first licenses for a winery or a brewery and to know that you had to go through multiple to do this. It just sounds like a paperwork nightmare to me, but I don't know if maybe it's a little easier in Maine. (laughs) No,
2: uh, well, the Maine thing wasn't too difficult. It was more the federal government at the time. I mean, the landscape has changed so much in the last 10 years. I mean, there's so much stuff that's happening now that would never have flown 10 years ago. I I would say 90% of the labels that are out there would not have been approved Ten years ago, period. Because they look like kids' products. You know what I mean? They look like yeah, candy. Too, too many colors and too many the colors, too many like clowns, too many the, whatever. The you know? important part that the federal government wants
1: is like hidden in the graphic somewhere. Totally. And, yeah, you know, I and that, that.
2: that just wouldn't have flown ten years ago. Period. No question about it. And you know, the landscape's different now. But the licensing wasn't necessarily difficult to get and it's not really difficult to maintain. It just does take time and some thought and a little bit of money, you know? Uh, The biggest thing is having a place that you can attach a license to because as I mentioned to you guys earlier, I was in here for nine months before I produced my first uh, product and I had to like pay rent and, you know, thankfully it was just me so I didn't have to pay anybody to be here but like, you know, it's not cheap to hold on to a place like this and and it was much smaller it was like 2000 yeah. square feet instead of the 10 that we're in now but still
1: but it's a and, and that happens in a lot of industries where you in order to get the license to do the thing you have to have the thing already <laughs> exactly. but you can't do that without, <laughs> I I had a couple of buddies one time who wanted to be able to buy from uh, the wholesale auto auction so they wanted to set up a car car dealership yep 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 and they were like well you have to have a space with a loading dock and posted hours and someone there at least one day of the week and they were like but we can't do that until we have a license and they said well you have to have it to show that you can get the license but you can't actually operate it <laughs> right until you get the license with it and pay for and it they were like that <laughs> yeah. makes no sense so i think a similar thing in in so many different w- places totally in, in government
2: well you know above and beyond all of the alcohol licenses we also have a commercial kitchen because that's required for both of these licenses and Based on the products that I want to produce, which are more than just alcoholic products, we are now able to produce non-alcoholic fermented foods and beverages. Um, the June being one of them, which uh, I think you might have tried. And this final product, which I'll have you guys try at the end, which is our fire cider. We call it fire in, fire in the hole for a long time. But it's essentially a hard cider vinegar product. and it began because I had all this extra pulp from the ginger kombucha and the ghost chili peppers and all the turmeric and all these things and we were just composting it and getting soil out of the deal which was fine but I figured I want to stretch it out and so we would take those waste products which were very clean and then re-steep them in this vinegar and you guys will get a little taste of this at the end here but um I'm a little worried because I heard, th- like, in the middle of that, you just snuck in
1: ghost pepper. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah.
2: I think I have some ghost chili pepper kombucha in here, too, that you guys might be trying soon. I but. think I tried that earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had, I had a delicious. little bit of one of those. So part, part of the mission here is to stretch things out as long as, as, far as they can go. You know, get as many uses out of things as you can. Waste as little as possible. And that's just a part of my general idea of what I want this company to support. And
1: kind of the attitude that they, i mean the earth provides it and you're yeah. gonna if you're gonna use it and take it then you might as well use it as much as you possibly can
2: totally i mean if you look around the room here that we're in all of this stuff is recycled these are all like the bars recycled these walls are recycled like the the this thing's recycled. you know. I mean, barrels, that's a beehive over there, right? That, that was little my side original, table. That was my, my, that was <laughs> yeah. my first beehive, yeah. <laughs> it's a little little coffee table now.
1: I thought when I was asking the question earlier, if you still had bees, I was
0: like, there's not bees
1: there's,
2: in that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't like it inside. Yeah, so let's hope not, because yeah. I'm yeah, about
0: yeah. three, four, well, maybe five feet away. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. I
2: don't see any bees so far. Yeah. So anyway, licensing um, is not, it's, it just requires time and patience and, and the space to attach a license to. And, and then hopefully a plan to utilize that license to like create a business that supports all of it. So I want to talk a little bit about what you guys
1: are doing now and in the near future. So if people listen to this and they're going to be visiting Portland, that they are. Are there any products coming out that you're excited to be working with? You mentioned you were picking up dandelions soon. Yep. And that of course everything is going to start growing. But what, what can people expect to see coming down the line that they can be like,
2: oh, yeah, I'm going to need to go try that? Yeah. I mean, it, one of our, our most popular thing is anything to do with rose. People just love it. Um, and so ro- sea roses are coming up fairly soon um, by end of June. And sea roses, did you say? Yeah, Rosa Urgoza. It's, uh, it's, it's basically they're, they're just smaller coastal roses. Okay, Beautiful, fragrant, the roses, but uh, just a little bit smaller. Just and close to the sea, not actually in the sea. They're not in the sea, okay. but they are a, <laughs> I was a like, variety. What? <laughs> yeah, right. They they grow on the coast, essentially. Okay. Um, <laughs> and is you know. that
0: used in the cider, the mead,
2: everything? Everything. Awesome. Yeah, we do. We, we with the Gruet thing and and, uh, and flowers, we do a lot of base lagering, and because it really is a great platform for subtle flavors um so we do uh you know rose lager rose mead rose cider rose kombucha rose everything because like it's delicious and again that's a very narrow window it'll be done like two or three weeks later because you know we're, you can only pick so many <laughs>
0: hey jeff we're, we're coming back in late june
2: yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I need some of that in my life. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't need to not come here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. And strawberries, you know, we get into berry season right after that. Um, lilacs are delicious. I think we have a strawberry cider on over there. Yeah,
1: that that was delicious, not too sweet, but nope. definitely that strawberry flavor. Yep. They, I, I really liked how dry some of those ciders were that I... My wife and I have really enjoyed ciders for a long time, but we're definitely on the dry end of everything, from red yeah. wine to ciders to even beers. Like, if if you can feel the moisture getting sucked out of your face, I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. that's what I want. And and some of those ciders you could really taste. It's like that natural. This is the flavor it's supposed to have.
2: That's what it is. I mean, that's and and it's interesting now. Dry ciders are a thing, but 10 years ago, they were not a thing. Unless you were like an artisanal French producer or somebody from a foreign country, the U.S., cider was candy. It was really just, it was more sugar in in hard cider than there was in apple juice. (laughs) I'm not even joking. Like, I've tested some of these things, like, back in the day. I'm not going to name any names, but it was like... What how could this be something that you want to consume? It's like literally a block of sugar, you know? Yeah. We've and and concentrated
1: so, the juice and giving you all the bad parts yeah, that's well, supposed well, to have. A lot of what they
2: do is they put sugar back into it. Because it's what the American palate has sort of grown to love. And and that's not my game at all. That's certainly not anything we want to produce here, or at least I want to produce here. I've had people who've worked here who wanted to do that because they want to sell more stuff. But like I'm not gonna Move away from the direction this company needs to go for for popularity. And we're gonna do it because we're doing what we feel is right, what I feel is right, and I want to be true to that fruit. And adding sugar back to something makes zero sense to me, you know. So, so anyway, the base is the super dry, and and then you can tell that when you when you try it. Even the raspberry, which I had a little sample of that there for you guys, you know, that's a very juicy, sweet fruit. But you can still taste that dryness behind it. The base is clearly dry, you know, and so that's where we're at. That's a great segue to
0: uh, my next question. You say you're not going to sacrifice what you want to do and what you do for popularity. What's We always ask this question. What's something you were super excited about here at Urban Farm that you knew was going to be a hit and it just fell flat? Your customers just did not like it
2: haven't really I mean everyone there's so many different people that come through here that's a hard a bit of a hard question to answer because some people like some things and some people don't I honestly haven't come across anything that was just like didn't work awesome yeah which has been really interesting I mean
1: has there been anything I, I guess on the flip side of that then has there been anything that you made that you were obviously you do quality control and you were like well this is Good, I'll, I'll put it out there, but I don't love it, and customers just went nuts over it.
2: Yeah, I don't like minty things at all, to be honest. And and some of our mint kombuchas, and, and people just love, eat them up, you know. And I'm just like, oh, it's cool. Uh, I'm not into that, but I don't need to be into that. I don't need to be into everything. I just wanted to follow um, the guidelines of, of pure fermentation and seasonal flavoring. And just because I don't like it, doesn't mean it's not something that we should serve. And that's great, as as long as it
0: follows your idea yep. and your ideals of how to do it. Yep. Let nature take its course. Even if you don't like it personally, it totally. fits our quality standards. Let's produce it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I like that idea. It's
2: not about me. Right. You know, in the sense that my my taste buds, my palate, I like certain things. It's more about the concept and it's more about this place. And so above and beyond what's gonna happen here seasonally, which will change quite a bit. The the grand plan for this is to actually move this concept around the country because the flavors of the Northeast are gonna be very different than the Southeast or the Southwest or the central part of the country or uh, somewhere else in the world. This concept is designed to capture the essence of a time and place, wherever that may be. And so that's what I'm moving towards now is to start producing in other places, find people to work with in those areas to capture the flavor, using all of these different platforms as a way to express it. And you
1: mentioned that you're already doing that in New York, New York City, upstate New York.
2: Uh, We're currently in upstate New York. We produce quite a bit of cider here. We're starting to produce quite a bit more cider in New York. From that process, we'll have yeast, which we can then produce um, meads in New York with New York honey, so it's New York apples. And so that's the first step. And um, we've actually thankfully started doing that now because it was a pretty tight year. And um, as we expand, we don't have enough to, pro- we don't produce enough cider in Maine to like fill all our territories. And so we've been able to like shift that a little bit and, um, and still be able to grow, but you know, in a way that, that is true to form, but it sort of just exp- it exp- expands where we're producing.
0: And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say the foraging opportunities in Manhattan, for example, are
2: probably slim to none. Pretty slim. But (laughs) thankfully, New York is a very large state. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I don't know. uh,
1: When my sister lived there, she had quite the garden in her little tiny backyard. It was pretty much everything was planted. She had all kinds of plants. You would have just had to, I think, go through her house. I don't think you could access it in any other way. Totally. So a little tougher tougher to forage. But maybe if you had a drone, you could find it and then sneak through and take her her beets or whatever she was growing back. there. Well, that's
2: a, you know, that's another great thing in the winter, you know, when everything's gone, we do a lot of root vegetable flavors, you know? So in the winter it's like beet kombucha, carrot kombucha. I think there's a carrot June on there right now. There's a lot of storable flavors that that's really all you got. And so I think the interesting thing beyond the location cuz we're obviously up in the top corner of the country, it's cold here a lot of the time. It takes plants a lot longer to get established and get growing. So you know, even if the flavors aren't going to be hugely different down south, they will be coming on sooner. And so that will be a change in how things are sold and produced in those new locations moving forward. So
0: even if, for example, even if the flavor additions are the same they may happen in Maine in July or August, totally. whereas down in
2: Florida in the future, they may happen in January or February. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes you know, sense. I was at a cider conference. I mean, I've been going to cider conferences for a decade, and I remember trying. It was a really cool uh, workshop I was at, and they were like, all right, you're going to try all these fruit, and the, these are the same fruit grown in New York as the uh, and grown in right outside of Seattle. You know, or not Seattle, but on the other side of the mountain range there. And so, basically, you're trying this one apple. It's like, uh, let's just say Cortland. I don't know, just an, a variety. You try it, and you're like, all right, cool. It tastes like the apple that I'm familiar with. Try the same apple from the West Coast. Very different. And that has a lot to do with the soil. That has a lot to do with the climate. You know, everything about it changes these, these fruits. You know, and so... I'm excited about how things change as, as they move further away from here. And I'm looking forward to just being able to experience that directly.
1: We did, my wife and I did a tasting during the pandemic. Uh, one of the local cider houses in D.C. did a, they did a couple of different virtual tastings. But the one that we thought was really cool is it was, I think, six or eight of their ciders But along with each little sample, you got the apple that it was produced from. Yep. So you can taste that and see how completely different it is or how much it changed or see the basic like those flavors and how they made it all the way through to the end. Yep. Yeah, totally. And some of those, I mean, some of our favorite ciders came from apples that I like. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. It was like a starchy, Disgusting fruit covered by paper or cardboard. (laughs) And I was like, I don't
2: even want to take a bite of that, but man, is that cider good. Most of the best cider producing apples are non edible like in the uk like all of that fruit all that's hard cider like in in spain which i mentioned you don't want to eat any of that stuff it's tannic it's bitter it's like it's not very it's not not for eating it's not a dessert fruit which is what we get in maine mostly we have dessert fruit but it's nice and sweet by the time it gets to the calvados stage yeah exactly (laughs) exactly have a little shot of that yeah so, you know, um, flavor is a big component to what we're looking for here, uh, or what we're exploring here, sorry. And, um, you know, the other component is that most people, most producers are killing the wild yeast, whether, you know, on, on whatever, they're boiling their wort, they're killing anything that might be on it, they're, they're pasteurizing the mead, they're pasteurizing the apple juice, whatever they're doing, hopefully they're not adding a ton of chemicals, but then they're inoculating with a specific yeast strain that is designed to do something, right? So that yeast strain, whether it was a wine yeast or a beer yeast or whatever, it was isolated from something at some point, put into a lab, grown out, and you got you know, billions of this particular strain, and it's gonna do something that it will pretty consistently do based on temperature and pressure and all these things, right? So, so basically, like, you can count on, and that's how people get consistency. They use the same yeast strain under the same conditions and they get the same output. Our stuff's crazy because I don't know what's on it. most of this stuff, to be honest. The only thing that I know that we've had constantly going for almost 10 years is our kombucha culture. And that, because you're always taking from the batch you just finished to start the next batch. It's that's how it it's goes. like a sourdough starter. It's like a sourdough starter. You pick the best one, you got a bunch of batches going, you pick pick the best one, you blend those together, and you take that best one to start the next one. And we've been doing that, you know, selectively for almost a decade now. So that one, again, I don't know what's in it, really. <laughs> you know, I know there's a bunch of yeast, and I know there's a bunch of bacteria in there. And I know that it has grown and changed over the last ten years to something that we like but it's still kind of just, who knows, you know? And that's, that's one of the ways we're very different than everybody else. I do see a lot more sour programs, a lot more weird stuff happening, but it does seem like the, people are trying to achieve those things generally in a very controlled way, which is natural, because you want to control your situation and that's just not how I'm approaching it, um, for better or worse.
1: So I think I already know the answer to this question, but we always like to ask when you're, you have a long day, whether you were out swimming in a river and foraging some stuff, whether you were in the back of house doing packaging, whatever, end of the day, you're going to sit down and have a drink before you head home. What's your go-to? Is there a flavor profile or a type that you go to, or is it just whatever's new?
2: Um, I like to taste what's fresh and new, just to, for a taste, but uh, one of the things I realized pretty early on, before we had a really good tasting room, I, I was working um, at this little bar, and they gave me a little satellite bar that I could serve at, it was more of a music venue, and um, I would bring the cider in, and I would bring kombucha in, and and I would sell it, and somebody asked me, they were like, oh, I really like the cider, but it's a little too dry, could you put a little bit of this blueberry kombucha in and I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And we made a blend and it was like delicious they just it worked out it works out really well and and then it became a thing that night it was just like all right i want the i want the blend whatever and so what i've come to find out and maybe the beers might be a slight exception to this rule but generally speaking the cider the meat and the kombucha all blend beautifully and depending on what you're going for whether it's higher alcohol or more flavor one way or the other you just kind of adjust your blends right and so my thing is generally What we call um, a session cider or an amalgam which is to blend a cider kombucha blend is is kind of what i generally go to and it'll be the dry cider or maybe a bittersweet cider which are bittersweeter apples or the non-edible like higher alcohol uh european apples in some ways um so it'll be like an eight percent cider blended with one and a half percent like blueberry or ginger or rose petal kombucha or whatever i'm feeling like so I, i do a lot of blends um, and, uh, you know, just depending on what I'm feeling like. So. Sounds super refreshing, honestly. And it's nice because yeah. you can tailor it to whatever you kind of want.
0: You right. Know? both flavor profile and alcohol content.
2: Yeah, exactly. If you'll notice on the glass that, you're, that your mic's staying in, there's measuring points on it, on the back side of it. And that was intentional so that we could do like a 50-50 blend or a 75, 75. You, know, you know. I like the 70-30 blend generally, like a little heavier on the booze. So I'll have a 70-30 cider to kombucha or 70-30 uh, mead to kombucha. I usually blend the kombucha in because it's got a little more flavor, a little more sweetness, and it kind of works really well.
1: I was going to ask, you mentioned the alcohol content in doing the blending, and you have some very low alcohol content, some no alcohol content, and some high alcohol content. Do the customers, a lot of people come to the Portland area or people in the Portland area will go brewery to brewery to brewery. It's kind of what we're doing this weekend sure. and trying a bunch of places, and they love those beers, and then they get here. Do you get pushback sometimes from people who are like, well, why would I want that non-alcoholic stuff? Or is it more, we love these flavors, it's so refreshing to have something that it's kind of like a break from all the beers?
2: Right. Well, you know, again, and you mentioned this early on, we kind of have something for everybody. So if somebody doesn't want something that's non alcoholic, they don't even look at it. You know what I mean? They're just like, okay, what do I want? I'm like, I already got a good buzz on. I want to keep that rolling. I'm going to like get a cider or mead, you know what I mean? Or maybe a a heavier beer or whatever. So we offer those, you know, and so... People sort of don't see the things they don't want to see, <laughs> and so they so look like for. Them, what especially the, if they've been to four
1: breweries, yeah, they come you know in here and there? they're like, I don't know, I don't totally. know what
2: that is. Ooh, that says the right word. Exactly. I that. But you know, the couple that comes in, or whatever the group that comes in, and they got a friend who doesn't drink for whatever reason, they can hang out and have a drink and feel like they're like part of the the crew, and 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 just enjoy themselves like they normally would, and not not feel like they got to get buzz, buzzed, you know.
1: And it's different, and it's flavorful, and it's available totally. that they can have a, a custom or like a, a homemade beverage with the same types of flavors that's non-alcoholic versus the root beer or diet coke yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, it's not packed full of everybody sugar, else and has. it's not
2: like you know, there's nothing funky. It's just like this is what it is. We tell you what it is, we tell you why we're making it, and, and it's available, <laughs> you know.
1: I'm actually a little sad that my wife is not here. I mentioned before that she doesn't really love beer, and she's getting more into some of the dark beers and stuff, but she's a huge fan of cider, and I think some of these flavors she would be very excited about. So we may have to bring her back here a little bit later once you guys are actually open so she can try some of the stuff you guys are producing because, I mean, it's delicious.
2: Yeah, well, we open every day at noon, so, well, come on back anytime. (laughs) And Eli, we talked a little bit off air before
0: we started recording about what Urban Farm has gone through in the pandemic, and we won't add that in the podcast. We've had so much good uh, conversation with you already, but let's talk a little bit about Portland and coming out of COVID. Uh, As uh, our listeners probably know from hearing our two episodes the last two weeks with the great lost bear here in Portland, the the beer scene, the brewery scene, the fermenting scene in Portland has exploded in the last decade, even before that, but really in the last decade. Tell us what you think about the Portland, uh, what people can expect
2: from the Portland beer scene as we come out of COVID. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it, it, it it's actually a bit of a shock to me that how successful the beer scene has been. Um, you know, I haven't seen really too much of anybody fail. Some places have gotten considerably larger because of it. And so I think it's just going to be, it's here to stay and it's going to be strong. And the nice part about it is that you can come to Portland and try a variety of different things in a very short space Uh, and it's all very walkable i mean it's a mile and a half wide by by three miles long it's a tiny peninsula at least the downtown you know so i mean i think there's like 15 or 16 brewers in my neighborhood now and we were you know we've been here for 10 years and like there was nobody here (laughs) so i i think what you could expect is a, a good diversity of Funky uh, spots, uh, out of the box spots like us, and then a lot of people who are just really trying to get after their love of whatever style of beer that they're they're into, and then tie that with an exceptional uh, restaurant scene. Although those guys are having the hardest time right now that I know about uh, in business. That was always a nice thing about this place: is you could you could have these really interesting beverages and then pair it with some delicious food. Uh, that was produced here and and from ingredients that were close to here. So I'm not sure what the landscape's going to be. I know right now, uh, I personally uh, just opened up a bottle shop in Kittery, which is right at the gateway of Maine coming up from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And um, I opened this thing three weeks ago, and I have not been able to find anybody to work it. So that's going to be a huge, huge issue for restaurants. Isn't, Isn't that like... People don't really seem to want to work right now and uh, whether they're afraid, whether they have re- better reasons not to, whatever the reason is, there's just not a lot of like people to do jobs out there right now and that's going to make it real hard. Um, so not to put a doom and gloom on it, but it, it's going to be challenging. Um, that said, I think it'll still be delicious. Uh, <laughs> you know,
1: It'll just keep expanding. And yeah. uh, it, it just might take a little bit and there may, there may be a little bit of a hiccup as people try to, to come out of it. I think... As far as the customers go, we've already seen it and we see more and more of it in the travel world. People are just getting excited and they're like, yes, I'm, I've got my vaccination. I'm going. I'm, I'm booking this. I'm booking that. Totally. And people are just doing more and more and more of that. So hopefully we'll, we'll see that turn around and we'll get back to a point not too long from now where you can have this tap room full of people and, yeah. and enjoy all these great beverages that you're producing.
2: Yeah, I feel pretty lucky in that we have so much outdoor space too. we can fit hundreds and hundreds of people outdoors with plenty of space and so i'm looking forward to the summer for that reason um and so and we'll see how the indoor thing kind of evolves we've been you know doing fairly well considering we changed this space into a bit of a restaurant just to um um, to be able to bring people in and offer some different flavors and sort of that sort of thing and when i say restaurant it it just means that we serve a little bit of food uh we're not like a full course restaurant Mm -hmm. and for our
0: listeners that are obviously listening to the podcast and haven't visited Urban Farm, I can tell you if you're planning a trip to Portland, even while the pandemic is still going on, uh, if you feel comfortable traveling to Portland, put Urban Farm uh, on your uh, scheduled list to visit. There's, uh, I believe, three outdoor, separate outdoor spaces. There's a little uh, concert, venue out back uh, that holds about a hundred people. There's a large parking lot that's been sort of closed off that can hold hundreds of people safely. There's another tent space out front that can hold, I think you said about a hundred, hundred yeah, about a hundred people or so, yeah. And then indoors, it's a, as you said, ten thousand square feet. Probably a third of that is open to the public, yeah, a quarter of it. Yeah,
2: it's about this. This space is above four thousand square feet. The tasting room proper, uh, if you take the bar area out, that's about three thousand. We used to have a capacity of about one hundred and eighty yeah. people. I think it's probably a little less than that right now. And uh, I mean, obviously, we're at half capacity. Right? And it's all uh, for
0: again for our listeners that can't see, it's all space out tons of space between tables there's partitions to make it super safe so if you are out traveling in 2021 especially this summer in Portland Maine is on your list certainly stop by urban farm it it'll be a safe fun adventure and you can try some delicious drinks absolutely we'd love to see you And speaking of travel, we do have to because it's a it's a beer
1: and travel podcast and we skew heavily towards the alcoholic beverages. for Episodes like this, obviously, because that's your wheelhouse. But we have managed throughout the conversation to bring up Spain and travels to there and travels to a few other places. I just want to get a quick rundown of your personal travels. And what are the the best spots in the U.S. that you know of for, we typically ask beer, but uh, beer, mead, cider, honey. If someone is looking to travel, where should they go in the U.S. to have those things?
2: Well, you know, let's just start with cider. Um, I would say the Northeast is probably one of the best places for cider. And then the Northwest. Those are the two zones. You know, I think it's just the apple. That's That's where where the apples are. That's where the apples are, you know. (laughs) Uh, Pacific Northwest probably has a bigger uh, cider scene um, I think it's older here but it's slowly starting to come about beer is everywhere you know I don't even I don't have any special <laughs> spots for that and then the mead um, I've got some friends in the Detroit area that are making some really amazing meads um, and there's small micro meaderies all over the place as far as kombucha is concerned I mean I'd say we're probably producing some of the the, the highest in, in, in class um, other than that the southwest of the US is, is a huge kombucha destination. Uh, you know, anywhere around Los Angeles, Southern California is just like that's where it's blowing up the most. Uh, San Diego, stuff like that. So it kind of depends on what you're interested in. Like, yeah. you know, it's all over the place. And so we're just happy that we can gather all of those different uh, product types and, and have one place that you can try it all.
1: And then how about internationally, as far as your travels, whether it be for drinks or whether it just be your personal travels yeah are there any spots in the world that you think people should see that are just so wonderful that you're just tell everyone, you got to go here.
2: Yeah, I'm a little hesitant to, to do that just because uh, I've seen some places that I really love blow up in the last five years that are just like, oh man, this place used to be great and now it's like overrun with people, you know? That's uh, funny because
1: Mike that we talked to yesterday answered that question the same way. He's like, I'm not telling you where they are. I yeah, love those places. Totally,
0: yeah. <laughs> I have favorites and you can't know exactly. about them. That's pretty much his exact words.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will tell you this though, and um, you know, if you're into cider, I would always, Strongly urge anybody going to visit uh, the Basque, Asturias, regions of northern Spain, um, you know, traditional cideries that have been producing cider the same way for 2,000 years. Um, very simple, very clean, the food's amazing, the people are, are lovely, you know. So so that whole area, anywhere from Basque all the way across to, to the western part of northern Spain is, is pretty phenomenal. Again, yeah. There's there's some spots I'm, I'm probably not going to have to mention right now, but <laughs> 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 but that place they could use the visitors and uh, and 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 they're just lovely. So, and how about
1: spots? Uh- some you mentioned some festivals that you had just thought were amazing festivals for cider and you've been traveling a lot is there anything on your list that you haven't been
2: able to make it to yet whether it's domestic or worldwide that's a big festival that you'd like to see i mean there's a lot of festivals in europe and around the world that i haven't that i've wanted to go to that i haven't been able to in the u.s you know i feel a little out of the loop as everyone does i'm sure because i haven't really been to anything in you know a year and a half or whatever but um there are tons of there's a ton of festivals. Um, you know the oldest cider festival in the country is called uh, Cider Days. It's in Western Massachusetts, you know in the Greenfield area. Super cool, old timey farmer style, like delicious. So and just really kind people. Again, there's a lot of stuff on the West Coast that I'm I've, I've heard about, but I'm not super familiar with. Um, and then beer festival. Those are everywhere. I don't even know. <laughs> There's probably yeah. a beer festival pretty close to wherever you are. There's probably right. one happening right now. Right in now. Portland. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I am going to Iceland, hopefully, in, in June for the solstice, and uh, we're doing a little small beer festival there. Um, I got some buddies. So uh, it's like four years ago. Um, the main roof scene is so strong that they actually, and, and we got a shipping company from Iceland that set up, Port, their U.S. operations is here in Portland. And so they turned a shipping container, 40-foot shipping container, into a uh, jockey box. 78 taps. It's called the main beer box. And um, huh. it's crazy awesome. And basically what they do is they pack it up full of beers and they send it abroad. So the first year I went to Iceland. And uh, and so obviously, and I had been going to Iceland because I'm a huge fan of hot springs. And so I was going there. Anyway, and I found, about, uh, found out about the fest and like amazing that's how the yogurt soured beer I, we learned how to make there because they were doing it there and so it would go there have a festival we had the biggest festival in the history of iceland with the beer box and then we gather up a bunch of beers from there brought it back here had them at our festival here because the main brewers guild has their festival every summer or generally um the next year i think it went to halifax or no it went to the uk then to halifax and they just shipped this thing all over the world and uh it Obviously, it was on pause last year, but hopefully next year it's going someplace cool. Um, that, that sounds really cool. We'll yeah, have to I, look into that. <laughs> I
0: know this is going to shock everyone, Jeff, but uh, I suddenly have a new goal in life, and that's to find this beer box. Yeah, I, I feel like I need to just track it all over the world.
2: Yeah, you should. You, you can go look at it It's on Commercial Street right now. It's actually here in Portland. I just saw it in in the I'm Skip uh, parking lot like a couple days ago. So it's just chilling there. There's nothing going on with it. Just sitting there. It's like a container, you know. But uh, so we it,
0: could technically stow away in it and just exactly live there exactly. Exactly, exactly. I was
1: just thinking we could meet it so that when we see it in the future, somewhere else it would know us. Yeah, so would, exactly. We're going to stow away.
2: Well, you know. But 78 taps, I mean it was the craziest thing ever, like I just remember like, and, and the coolest thing about that experience was that, you know, normally at a brew fest you're serving your own stuff. Everyone's serving their own stuff. That's just what it is, right? This thing was everyone was serving everybody's everything. <laughs> so, like it didn't matter, there was like a line of brewers and they were just like serving. You know, you kind of stood in front of maybe five taps and you just like served as much as possible. And the line was as far back as you could see and everyone was getting in line working their way to the front getting a beer getting back in line and then it was just this non-stop <laughs> rotation dude it was crazy and brewers were just you know jumping from the sidelines jumping in for about a half an hour jumping out everyone it was just, it was crazy and it was awesome because it felt like we were all just this giant crew we were just like the main crew you know, yeah, um, you
1: just doing what you love and getting yeah, into the people you know, and having I, a great time.
2: I remember like explaining other people's beers, you know, and I would literally be like, "Oh, I gotta go find out more about this," and I'd find out from the person who made it and be like, oh, "All right, cool." And then I would tell whoever wanted to know about it, you know. And it was, it was a very different but a very communal experience that I, I thought was pretty magical. And the people in
0: Iceland love. To have a good time, they, and they and, love yeah, to drink. They so do. I can I, I can picture this this line that they're jumping in and out of for totally. seventy eight taps. I can I can picture it in my mind because those people love to party.
2: Yeah, and it was it was gnarly because it was like sideways rain and like the craziest weather ever the day before. Like I thought we were screwed, and then that morning it just cleared right out and it got sunny and people were just people came out. It was literally the biggest thing that ever happened as far as beer festivals in, in the country. And it was, it was cool. I mean, the funny thing was on the flight over, you know, I met a bunch of people on the flight and uh, they were all at the, fe- everybody was at the festival, right? Like everybody was at the festival. So that whole week you when know, like, you're walking around town, you're just seeing people, and you're like, Yo. <laughs> I remember yeah, I remember you, you. I yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, that was a cool experience with, with uh, traveling and, um, and the beer scene here in town. Yeah. And I
1: think I, I'm, I think that's it we, we're gonna close it up there because okay. that's I mean how can you end on a better story than that yeah before we end the episode though give us a quick rundown where can people find you where can they find urban farm fermentary online yep. in person where sure. where can they find you
2: Well uh, so the urban farm fermentary proper is at 200 Anderson Street right here in East Bayside Portland Maine and we're pretty much right in the heart of it. Um, surrounded by all kinds of breweries you can go to our website is fermentary.com and uh, that can give you locations to where we're currently available Um,
1: i think the fact that you have fermentary.com tells people how long you've been doing this yeah (laughs) that you were able to snag that yeah well
2: nobody was thinking about that 10 years ago it wasn't until probably five years ago that i started seeing the word fermentary pop up and it was mostly just breweries or whatever. But uh, but yeah, I, you know, we're distributed uh, between uh, Maine, Massachusetts, uh, New York and the greater Philly area right now. So Eastern, Eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, we were gonna expand more, but we decided to put a hold on it a little bit and really make sure we got this stuff dialed in after this COVID year of kind of things being thrown off a little bit. Uh, hopefully by next year, we've fleshed out the rest of New England Um, We're actually exporting to Iceland, hopefully, next month for the first time, which will be exciting. Uh, And then from there to mainland Europe, if possible. But beyond that, I don't think we're going to be expanding much more until we start to develop new facilities in locations that then can service those areas and replicate what we're trying to do here, but based on those parameters of that location. How about social media? Where can they find you? Um, you know, we have a small Facebook presence. Um, I'm not a huge fan of social media, so we, we do have an Instagram that kind of documents what's happening here. we got a little bit of Facebook stuff going on. But people should just come in person? I think coming in person is <laughs> the best way because then you can really experience the flavors firsthand because, you know, pictures don't do any of this stuff justice.
1: And that's 100% true. Pictures of what we tried today would be colorful and they would be beautiful and they would be wonderful on instagram but nothing compared to the flavors that we had and each one was so different
2: yeah and on that note i'd like you guys to all try this fire cider right here (laughs) so uh i got three half pours for you because they're potent and so this is a hard cider vinegar blend it's got ginger from our ginger kombucha turmeric ghost chili peppers a little bit of garlic because my mom has a garlic farm and uh some honey And is this a sipper or is this a turn it back? It's a turn it back. It's a shot. Cheers. Cheers. Just live with it for a minute because it evolves over time on your palate.
1: Ooh. (laughs) There's a lot going on in there. When you (laughs) described it, I was like, oh, that is scary. That's amazing. And it's still changing. It'll change
0: for the next 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, it's changing as my eyes are starting to water, <laughs> yeah. and my mouth is now starting to... <laughs> you guys are going to break out and sweat. Yeah, it's it's... going to be awesome. And the listeners don't
1: know this, but as we started, as we were getting ready to do the show, Eli said, oh, hold on a second. I got a little something in my throat. I'm going to go get a shot of this. And went and took it, and I can see how that cleared
2: him out. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, absolutely. It's, it's a little spicy. Quite good, though. Yeah. It's really nice. Uh, great as a salad dressing, actually. I got old ladies coming in here all the time, be like, "Oh my God, this is great on my salads." I'm like, "I love it. Use it however you will." <laughs> you know. I and- was
0: I was today years old when I thought about having something like that as a salad dressing, but <laughs> yeah. it's it's gonna happen now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Absolutely. So, Eli, thank you so much. I know this was kind of last minute because we had something fall through here. Sure. Seems to happen with us a lot, but luckily the community of of brewers and owners so, such a great community that you could hop in and do this with us fantastic conversation fantastic samples definitely will highly recommend this so thank you for being here with us my Two pleasure. thumbs up eli thank Thanks, you yes. appreciate it all right everyone what a great conversation with eli that just the sheer passion that he puts into his job is so evident in everything about that place. We highly recommend you go visit. And now it's time for us to get into some updates in the world of travel and credit cards and hotels and airlines. And we're going to start with credit cards. And we're not going to start with Chase this week, Derek, because
0: they don't have the biggest news. Unbelievable, Jeff. I thought we were basically... uh. Forced to do that every week. We do it every week, but nothing this week's shocker, I tell you. Shocker. I mean, we do have a little bit of chase news uh,
1: that you would maybe expect uh, coming on, but uh, I switched things up a little bit in the outline today. So we're going to start with uh, we found out this week that for the Barclays Aviator Red card, which typically is one of the easiest bonuses to earn because you get the miles. Often a 60,000 point offer after the first purchase. So you don't have to spend two or three or four or $5,000. But in addition to that, right now, if you apply in flight with American Airlines, they're also waiving the annual fee on that card. So if you get that card, no annual fee for the first year, 60,000 miles with your first purchase. So you go buy a pack of gum, you're 60,000 American Air miles richer. That's a heck of an offer,
0: don't you think, Derek? Jeff, had I been good at math growing up, I probably gone would have gone to med school, but I'm terrible at math, so I went to law school instead. My math tells me that's a really bad return on their investment if people swipe one time and get 60,000 AA miles, Right. I
1: think it is. I can't imagine that that will go on for too long, but you know how they love to push those credit cards in flight, so maybe this is just making it a little easier and they want to get as many people as they can when they when people start getting back up in the air.
0: Yeah, if you've got an AA flight and uh, you you are eligible for this offer, more on that in a moment. Uh, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Waiving that annual fee saves you the 95 bucks or the 99 bucks. I can't recall which one it is, for that first year. So that's uh, literally 80,000 AA miles for free. And Jeff, that brings me to a second point on Barclays. Anyone that's asking about you know, how to get AA miles, there really aren't any application restrictions for Barclays in terms of when you're eligible. So it is a churnable card. Uh, you can uh, open and close those just about as quickly as you want to my only advice would be maybe don't do too many of them or
1: you'll end up like me without an American Air account because they (laughs) deemed me as having too many credit cards in too short a time.
0: Oh, the gravy train was good while it lasted, yes, It
1: was. And now let's move
0: (laughs) on to uh,
1: Chase because this is an example of me predicting the future, maybe, me being right, me being hopeful, but... I said on the podcast last week that I was not going to apply for the 80,000-point offer for the Chase Sapphire Preferred because I wanted it to get bigger. And within a few hours after we did that recording, reports started coming out of an even better offer. And it is highly targeted at this point. We can hope that it spreads out a little bit more to a a wider-targeted audience or even possibly goes public. But keep an eye out for it in the mail if you... Get this offer. You can get the Chase Sapphire Preferred with a ninety thousand point bonus, plus they're doing five x points on up to six thousand dollars in grocery and gas for the first six months you have the card. So that's a lot better than that eighty thousand
0: point plus fifty dollars in grocery. Two things here, Jeff. Number one, we all need your crystal ball. You did call this literally hours before we saw posts, post, I believe on Dr. Credit first, announcing that. I wish all of our listeners could have seen the text between you and I that night because I sent a lot of caps, a couple of choice words. Like, dude, how how could you possibly have predicted this? Uh, So we all need your crystal ball. Number two, and probably more important, rather than the banter between Jeff and I behind the scenes, uh, this is clearly a no-brainer. If you get one of these targeted offers and you are eligible, go get 90,000 Ultimate Rewards and 5x Ultimate Rewards on up to 6,000 in grocery spend in the first six months. Absolute no-brainer. Yeah, that's, that's up to 120,000 points total
1: with that grocery spend added on. So I really, really hope that either A, they
0: target me for this, or B, this becomes a public offer as we get into June year. And that was my next question. I was really hoping you'd already been targeted, but it sounds like that's not the case thus far. Not that I have seen. So
1: we'll just keep waiting. We'll see maybe next week. Who knows? There's new bonuses coming out all the time. Speaking of that, Amex with some targeted offers for upgrades on cards. If you have uh, one of the lower-end Hilton cards, the either the no annual fee card, or if you have the Surpass card... You should check your account because you may have upgrade offers to move up to the Surpass or the Aspire card, and they are offering up to 150,000 point bonus for the card upgrade, not even for a brand new card, but just that upgrade. You will have to spend $3,000 or $4,000 in the first three months, depending on which of those cards you upgrade to. But that's a pretty big upgrade offer for a card, similar to a sign-up bonus for a brand new card coming out from Amex.
0: Yeah, and it's really huge, Jeff, for those of us that are already over the five credit card limit rule for Amex and we're, and we're blocked from any more additional credit card offers until we close a credit card uh, with Amex. So if you are in that uh, situation, definitely worth upgrading uh, essentially a brand new sign-up bonus without opening a new account. So those are great. And I have to say, the
1: Aspire card is
0: one of my favorites. It's got some
1: great credits. They're easy to get a lot of the credits. Gives you diamond status. It's, it's one that I have held on to for a couple of years now because I'm seeing enough value out of it. So uh, definitely, like you said, worth upgrading if you have one of these offers coming in.
0: Spoiler alert, we'll talk about my wife Sarah's Aspire and how she used it on our current vacation to take advantage of all of those credits. That'll be coming in just a little bit when we get down to the travel
1: section. But first, we wanna hit on one more uh, Amex offer. And this is available on several of your cards. You'll only be able to use the offer on one card, but we saw it on several cards. And that is a $40 back on a $200 spend with Marriott. And that's an Amex offer. If you have a couple nights at a Marriott property coming up, absolutely sign up for that, pay with your card and get that $40 back, great value there in in one of those Amex offers coming out. We haven't seen a ton of really good Amex offers since the beginning of the year, so nice to see some of these picking back up.
0: Yeah, and Jeff, I know that, you know, uh, as our listeners know, you and I went to Portland, Maine with our wives together back at the beginning of the month, and uh, that weekend uh, we saw the 60 back on 300 Amex offer for Hyatt. So it's really good to see just a few weeks later Amex is also offering a similar offer for Marriott uh, should be something for uh, loyalist of any hotel program. Hopefully we see one for Hilton in the near future, but you uh, got to love saving money, especially when you have a stay already planned.
1: Yep, no matter where you like to stay, keep an eye on those offers if you have Amex cards because you never know when they're going to throw one of those bonuses out for you. One last thing in the credit card world, and it's not even really credit cards but kind of fits best there. And that is, I just wanted to remind people to keep an eye out on the PayPal Digital Gifts site. And this is a where you can go through your PayPal account, you can use credit cards, you can use your PayPal balance. Um, we suggest credit cards because you can earn points with those. But to purchase gift cards, and they often do gift cards where they will increase the amount of the gift card. So the, the two that I'm just going to mention quick now are there was a $110 offer... For Well, it was a $110 Home Depot gift card for $100, and then there was a $50 Chipotle gift card for $40. So if you normally spend at these places, for example, I'm still working on redoing a bathroom. I'm spending hundreds of dollars a week at Home Depot, so that was easy. I picked up one of those on my business PayPal, my personal PayPal, my wife's PayPal. We got three of those gift cards for that. I know, Derek,
0: you're a, a big fan of Chipotle, so I assume that you're going to pick up some of those. I could eat $50 worth of guacamole, Jeff. So $50 worth of guacamole for 40 is a win in my book. And it's also important to mention PayPal Digital Gifts. I'm fairly certain, correct me if I'm wrong, that the MX Platinum PayPal offer will trigger uh, from that. So that could be an additional $30 a month savings Uh, Still available for May, if you haven't used it, and for June.
1: And these are just an easy way to put spending on some credit cards if you're working on a sign-up bonus or you just need to get some spend on for things that you would be spending normally every day and get a little bit more gift card for your dollar.
0: And that's, that's it for credit cards this week, Jeff. Next up is hotels, but I guess, I don't know. We could also call this the Weird News of the Week. Um, maybe we need oh, to include I don't them. know.
1: I think we get weirder when we get to airlines. Uh, we'll maybe, maybe
0: maybe so. Maybe so. We might need to create our own category for, like, the stupid and weird from the week. But uh, it, under hotels, Marriott announced this week that they're not allowing credit card surcharges at their hotels in the U.S. and Canada. Although, as been reported on numerous blogs over the last few weeks or a month or so, There are hotels that are currently charging credit card surcharges, and they have signs in their lobbies and at the checkout desk advising of these credit card surcharges. Bloggers and journalists have followed up with Marriott, who basically said, yeah, they can do whatever they want. Uh, But now Marriott comes out and says, this won't happen, even though it already is. Jeff, are you confused?
1: Well, it's one of those things where if you weren't paying attention in the industry and you're just a normal person who's traveling and you saw that headline, you would say, well, yeah, of course. Why would they charge surcharges for a credit card? That's how most people pay for their hotel stays. But in typical Marriott fashion, they weren't paying that great of attention to some of their hotels. And some of their hotels have been doing this since as early as March, I think, was the first report that I saw on it. And people have been rightly upset about that because it's not, I mean, if you're going on vacation, you're going to be gone for a couple of weeks and staying in hotels that whole time. You're not going to travel with thousands of dollars in cash. That would just be silly. So they're just basically charging a surcharge on the way people pay. And luckily, Marriott has said no more of this. Um, I think it is a little odd that they limited it to only U.S. and Canada that they're saying there will be no surcharges and i think they were a little late to the game in this but it's nice that they have said that hopefully they will be able to enforce that with their hotels
0: and let's hope it actually happens right because i know that the official i believe it was the official corporate response a few weeks ago when this was pointed out marriott kind of shrugged it off and you know blamed it on franchisees and you know basically said we have no control over over local hotels when you're that large of a of a corporation and you come out with uh, corporate policies, Jeff. I feel like you really have to have hundred percent compliance. otherwise you know your policy's not worth the paper it's written on.
1: Absolutely. And now shifting over to airlines where I think we have something weirder than Marriott with the credit cards. and that is this week a Ryanair flight was diverted to Belarus by way of what turned out to be a fake bomb threat. So they got the plane to land in Belarus to remove a journalist who was a criminal in that country and had been sentenced, I believe, to death, I read. And they basically, effectively, the nation hijacked a plane and brought it down so that they could take this person off, and then they let it take back off a little while later. So, I, I mean, I don't even understand how that's possible. I mean, I guess if you use fighter planes or whatever, or fake a bomb threat, that's how it's possible. But the, it just the fact that that can happen in today's world is crazy to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I will be the first to admit, Jeff. Although I'm a political science major in college, and I I love uh, the political climate worldwide, I know next to nothing about the politics in Belarus. But from everything I've read, this was. Basically a political kidnapping. Um, a a um, citizen of Belarus that was not traveling through that country uh, was apprehended in that country by the government basically ordering the plane to land in their country. Um, I know the U.S. has had a very firm response uh, and is threatening sanctions, as are most of the NATO countries. It's terrifying. Weird? Weird? Uh, news of the week, but also just absolutely terrifying. This is, this is not the way you expect, uh, especially EU member nations, uh, to behave.
1: And it, it has affected travel in that many airlines are now, um, I think anything flying out of the UK is now not allowed to transit over Belarus airspace. And we'll see as that develops what comes of that. But something to keep an eye on if you have a flight around that region you may have to be going out of your way to get around there if they're not going to respect the airspace
0: above them. And from that um, weird news, kind of scary news, to some better news, Jeff. This week JetBlue and American Air uh, took a step forward and announced uh, the formal uh, combination of their programs, if you wish. They announced reciprocal mileage and elite earning between the two. Uh, on any flights with JetBlue or American Airlines, you can choose where to earn your your miles and where to which program to credit those flights towards earning elite status. I I think this is probably uh a a better deal for American Air Elites, but you know, there's those a few people out there, Jeff, that don't really have American Air accounts anymore. So would it that might be? be? I can't yeah. imagine. <laughs> it might be nice to credit any paid uh, American Air flight you have uh, to another program like JetBlue. What are your thoughts? I think it's a good move,
1: uh, especially for people who still have accounts with both programs. But um, they did also, you can now book uh, for either program, flights with either program, on either website and earn in either program. You can't redeem points for the other airline yet, but they do say that that is coming soon. They didn't give a date for that, but soon you will be able to redeem your JetBlue points for flights on American and your American miles for flights on JetBlue. We have no idea what the rates will be or when that will happen. One note on this, uh, JetBlue's new transatlantic flights that everyone was so excited about and we talked about last week are excluded from this, so you cannot earn American miles on those flights.
0: Well, at the prices I've seen, that's probably because you would earn like enough American Air miles on one flight to uh, book Qatar Q Suites or something after a one way to Europe, so that's probably a good thing. I don't know, Jeff. I would say overall, it's great. It's always good to see uh, you know these new partnerships uh, coming to fruition. I think although I'm not really a JetBlue flyer, I think for the average person uh, in our in our space at least, if you like first, class and business class flights, crediting any JetBlue flights to American Air probably makes more sense. I feel like those business and first class flights with American Air's One World Partners give you a lot more uh, return on your points than JetBlue would. JetBlue is uh, a revenue-based loyalty program, so you typically get around 1.5 cents per point. For JetBlue points, uh, and with American, as we all know, you fly Qatar Q suites, uh, Etihad First or Business to the Middle East or elsewhere, uh, JAL to uh, Japan. You can get, you know, those bonkers good redemptions, ten plus cents per point. So I would be crediting my points there. But to each their own. Maybe you love uh, JetBlue Mint and fly back and forth JFK to LAX a lot. So. Uh, my thoughts are American Air better than JetBlue, but teach their own. And we can assume that American is spending a lot of
1: money on this new partnership, maybe too much money because they are cutting costs in other places. Also, this week it came out that as part of the cost cutting, their CFO announced that American will be switching to single agent boarding of flights. So that means one agent. Only one agent at the gate, which I can't even imagine how they will do. It's going to be an absolute mess because I don't know. I I was thinking today, I was trying to remember if there has ever been a flight that I've been on where when I boarded, the other gate agent wasn't taking care of some problem or question from another passenger. And I don't
0: think there was. It's one of those things (laughs) when when I saw this, Jeff, it works when everything works perfectly. But guess what? At airports, uh, delayed flights, missed late arriving airplanes, mi- you know, lost luggage, people needing assistance, uh, wheelchairs missing, that type of thing. Nothing ever goes perfectly. So I'm like you. I think we're going to have gate agents trying to call over the intercom, trying to, you know, upgrade people, uh... Figure out new gates. Figure out where missing passengers are. Instead of boarding the plane, this just seems like it's a terrible idea.
1: It's going to lead to delays and delays and delays. But I'm sure they won't mark them as delays because they were boarding at the proper time. So I don't. I mean, they won't notify anyone it's delayed.
0: But so, so what you're saying is this is a program enhancement.
1: Absolutely.
0: It, it's going to make the traveler experience better. Because maybe they'll only have to work with one grumpy agent at a time. (laughs) I don't know.
1: That agent will probably be talking to someone else, so you won't be able to work with them at all. Maybe they'll be boarding the
0: plane. Who knows? Who knows how how people
1: are going to get on the planes.
0: Yeah, we laugh, but I feel really, really bad for these employees because, I mean, they seem all stressed out all the time anyway. Even when, you know, upset passengers aren't screaming at them for some reason or another that typically isn't their fault. but. You take all that, I mean, even when that's not going on, they seem stressed and overworked. So you take away their assistance at the gate, and I can only imagine what a you know a single eight-hour shift is going to be like in that position.
1: And news like this makes me feel not quite as bad that I don't fly American that much anymore. <laughs> United is once again trying to encourage travelers to get vaccinated and they have launched a contest this week which has some pretty great prizes and if you've been vaccinated i say absolutely go and join this contest or sign up for this contest what you have to do is load your vaccination card your completed vaccination card and Then you will be entered. The prizes are, there will be five grand prizes. Those people will win what they're calling free flights for a year with a companion. What it really is, is you get vouchers for 26 round-trip flights. But here's the thing, that's valid in any class of service and you get to take a companion with you. So ridiculously valuable prize. 30 other people will will win one round-trip flight for two in any class of service. So again, great prizes if you're going to fly business class, business first on United. Um, You can fly Polaris. Just great prizes if you happen to be one of the winners. Flights must be on United Metal, So it does limit you a little bit, but they fly to a stupid number of destinations themselves. So great opportunity to take flights. And the drawing will be on July 5th first so make sure you get entered before then a note about uploading the vaccine cards if you're going to fly with united to a destination where you need to be vaccinated you have to upload those cards anyway so you might as well do it now and get entered in this and then you can be ready next time you're
0: going to fly so let me break down this contest for people that think like me jeff you ready Mm Mm-hmm. upload your vaccination card after being fully vaccinated united is giving you a chance five people will win 52 ice cream sundaes in Polaris. Mm, How awesome is that? 52 ice cream sundaes. I love those things, right? I would pay money for those on the ground. You get, you get to get 52 up to 52 ice cream sundaes while sitting in Polaris flying anywhere you want. I'm in. Sign me
1: up. I'm in. And my first reaction when I read the, the terms of this, because they say it's, it's everywhere it says free flights for a year, I was like, that can't really be true. How many flights can you actually take? And then I saw that it was 26 round trips. They have to be round trips. And I was like, oh, that's not that many. That's only 26. But that is more than two round trip flights per month for a, a, the normal person. They can't even come close to that. Those of us who travel ridiculously will struggle to fit that all in if you want to actually see destinations. So, like I said, pretty great prize. I'm hoping I win. Maybe I should say don't enter. I should tell everyone not to enter so that I have a better chance at it. Good point, because we need ice cream sundaes. Yes. so don't enter this United contest. Terrible value. Definitely don't do it. Yeah, terrible idea. Waste of time. Moving on. United also announced that they will be giving pilots up to 13 hours of pay to get vaccinated, which is huge. Some of these pilots, the the senior pilots who have been there for a long time can make upwards of $300 an hour. So thousands of dollars they could be getting to get vaccinated. So United really investing in both passengers and their pilots to get people vaccinated. Great to see from them.
0: Agreed. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, most people, you know, the vast majority are going to do it anyway. But uh, I think, you know, offering an incentive like this, if anything, it probably just – probably kicks some people to say, yeah, let's go do it. But it probably speeds up the timeline. Some people that are procrastinating just take the time to do it. Who doesn't want, you know, another couple of grand in their pocket? So that's that's really good. And United is, I will say, they catch a lot of flack in the travel world, not just our spaces, the points of mile space, but travel generally – They've been on the forefront of this vaccination thing since the very beginning, announcing numerous uh, promotions and uh, and really uh, you know they've been all over social me- social media, promoting vaccinations and trying to get back to normal. So, uh, give credit where credit is due. Uh, kudos to United. They're they're doing a great job on the vaccination front. And speaking of vaccinations,
1: as we move down into our general travel updates, Uber and Lyft are offering up to $100 total in credited rides, and that's up to four rides at $25 each, and that's for people to go get their vaccinations, so to the vaccination center and back for both doses of the vaccines that need two doses. That's a partnership with the White House. They launched that recently but that's both Uber and Lyft. We'll try to link up to that so that you can see how to redeem that or how to get that taken care of, but really making it easy for people to get there if they don't have a car, if they don't wanna drive, if they live in a city and don't wanna take public transit, use Uber, use Lyft, go get your vaccinations. As a reward, travel will be easier. Puerto Rico has removed the requirement for testing for vaccinated travelers already. And a big one, Hawaii announced that they will remove testing requirements for vaccinated travelers by July 4th. So Hawaii has been, people have struggled with their requirements. It's been different on different islands. It's changed quite a bit over time of what type of testing you need when you need the testing. It's great news for those people who want to travel to Hawaii and have been vaccinated. Travel will get much, much easier as we head into summer.
0: Much, much easier to Hawaii. Should be a good thing. Might make getting that really special dining reservation even slightly harder than it already is. I've been hearing horror stories of getting dining reservations, especially on Maui. But uh, everybody wants to go to Hawaii, but I'm kidding. Uh, There are problems, but... Uh, You know, anything that makes travel easier uh, while being safe is a good thing. So this is really, really good news, and it goes in line with all the good news we're having on the vaccination numbers in the United States.
1: And it may create quite a mess with rental cars in Hawaii also, as we've seen problems with that going straight through. So if you are going to book a trip and you're excited and you're vaccinated and you're going to go, definitely look at flights and look at rental cars and look at hotels to see if all of it is available for you before you hit the book button on any of that. Last thing we wanna talk about in travel is Derek is currently traveling. So let's hear some updates from you on how things are going on your trip as far as flights, hotels, cars, people wearing masks, masks not required. Uh, I guess tell us where you are and and anything that you've seen that people should know about.
0: Yep, Perfect, so we are currently in Palm Desert, just uh, south of Palm Springs. We spent the weekend last weekend in La Quinta, which is south of um, also Palm Springs. Uh, we flew into San Diego. We head back to San Diego uh, for Memor- Memorial Day weekend. Zero issues getting a rental car. We got a brand new Chevy SUV, six miles on it. Uh, Sarah booked with the, Emer- uh, the uh, Emerald status with National uh, via her MX Platinum. She was able to pick our car, and we got an SUV because we we're traveling with another couple um, no line with the national status uh, so we were in and out maybe 15 minutes San Diego airport was uh, very very empty but uh, our layover in Midway I gotta say Jeff it was uh, we laid over around 8, 8 a 7:30 I think central time at Midway the most crowded I have ever seen Midway the line at a uh, Starbucks was probably 150 people deep. Every female bathroom had a line uh, out the door and probably another 100 people deep. Uh, most guys' restrooms had lines. It was a madhouse. Never seen it that busy, and Midway is typically busy. We headed to, uh, over to Palm Springs with no issues. It is lovely here. Uh, but don't listen to the lies. Uh, dry heat is still stupid hot. <laughs> uh, we are we are chugging electrolyte drinks. It's uh, 100 degrees is brutal. But uh, we stayed at the Waldorf Astoria, La Quinta. If you aren't following us on Instagram, you can find us at Travel on Points uh, on Insta. We're keeping up our stories updated. Jeff, the COVID excuse is nuts. First, they told us that Waldorf Astoria that we we didn't get breakfast we got a fifteen dollar credit each day uh, that seemed uh, initially that seemed terrible but it ended up working out they did have plenty of options for two to get coffee and breakfast with fifteen bucks a day so that was good that's not the new changes announced that we talked about last week That's just um, that's just the COVID excuse as I call it um, the Waldorf Astoria was fabulous forty one pools uh, we talked about that uh, about a month ago I guess. Uh, with st- our episodes with Stephanie. Uh, 41 pools, I think it's like the most in the U.S. at a hotel. And Stephanie and I
1: challenged you to go in every single one of them. And how did you do on that quest?
0: Well, there are 41, and I went to one. So I missed the mark by, I don't know, give or take uh, 98%. So not bad. No, that's terrible. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's terrible. So I have one an excuse. One pool. Yeah. tell- pool. Yeah. So I was telling Jeff off off air, uh, it sounds terrible, but there is a reason the Waldorf Astoria has these nice little areas called poolside casitas. Uh, it's a little courtyard. The courtyard is a pool and around it is, you know, eight or eight or 10, uh, rooms, uh, you know, casitas, they call them your little, your little rooms that are, they're kind of like a condo, really. They're probably 800 square feet, but, uh, after the first night, our next two nights, there, were, there was like one other room around our pool booked. So, the four of us sat there uh, at our own pool, uh, private pool basically, for the next two days. So there was no one around. There was zero reason to leave, Jeff, because uh, when I don't have to interact with humans on vacation, that's typically a good thing. So we sat around our own pool, uh, had some nice wine, uh, had some takeout, had some other meals and came back later. Enjoyed the hot tub and the pool, and just kept the kept the pool to ourselves, so to speak. So it was nice. It's pretty hard to walk away from a private pool. It is, yeah, especially yeah. when it, especially when you're not paying to to uh, for the upkeep, right? So the the one thing, Jeff, that I uh, mentioned earlier about the Aspire credit, we were prepared to pay the resort fees. Uh, and, uh, and some incidental charges with our Aspire credit, $250 per year at eligible Hilton Resorts. You can just Google uh, Hilton Resorts and it will uh, bring you to a web page that lists all the resorts in the world that that resort credit is eligible for. And that is a card member year credit, not a calendar year credit. So each year after you pay your annual fee, You have $250 to spend at Hilton Resorts before the next annual fee hits. Uh, Sarah had not used hers this year, so we were planning to use it at the Waldorf Astoria. They did not charge us any resort fees, uh, no fees of any kind, and our breakfast was basically free every morning. So Sarah treated herself to a $250 massage. I'm not exactly sure what that entails, but she had a great time. She was smiling, and... uh, she was very relaxed and basically fell asleep at dinner last night. So, you know. Um, it's probably apparently the it was massage awesome. that cost $10 in Thailand. but Probably, yeah. I a do Waldorf know she Astoria was there for like prices. an hour. Yeah, she was there for like an hour and a half. So, you know, it probably would have been about 10 or 15 bucks in Thailand. But uh, at a Waldorf Astoria, it was apparently about 250 bucks uh, after tip. So, But she was happy, and it was free, uh, courtesy of our spire. Uh, and better... Uh, even better is the fact that, you know, they put that on your bill. We earned Hilton Honors points on that. So although it was free, we earned, uh, I believe it's 16X on Hilton charges on the Aspire card. So honestly, Jeff, I think I've, I've said many times, especially after 524, the best hotel card on the market, I think, is the Hilton Aspire. $250 airline incidental credit, $250 Hilton credit. For that 50, uh, $450 annual fee, it's a $50 money maker each year if you can take advantage of both of them.
1: Absolutely. I've got one. You've got
0: one. Sarah has one. Love them.
1: There's a reason we keep these cards.
0: Love them. Yep. Overall, I would just say, Jeff, uh, mass compliance, as you would expect, has been extremely good in California. They are still required in all public spaces. Uh, One good thing for uh, people in California, uh, around the time we arrived, we did see the news that California is removing all COVID restrictions for indoor businesses and restaurants. I believe that's on June 15th. So. While we are under a few uh, capacity restrictions at places, uh, you all can fact check me and, and tell me I'm wrong on, on Twitter or something, um, but uh, I believe it's June 16th, all California indoor dining and shopping restrictions are lifted, so that's good news. Excellent to see things
1: and have firsthand experience out there telling us that things are opening back up and getting more back to normal. So as travel picks up this weekend, lots of people will be out traveling. Hopefully you're listening to the podcast as you're on a plane somewhere and enjoying your Memorial Day weekend. As we head into summer, we remind people, be patient. Things are going to take a little longer. There may be bigger lines, but you're getting to get out of your house, which is a lot better than last summer. So enjoy that travel, and we'll be back next week with more updates. Well, we hope you had as much fun listening to Eli as we did talking to him. He has an unrivaled passion and knowledge when it comes to fermenting, and it really shows in the beverages he's producing. If you want to try some of the creative creations from Urban Farm Fermentary, you'll need to make your way to Portland, Maine.
0: Who knows? You might even run into Eli in the taproom. If you do, be sure to tell him we sent you. All of the important points and links for things we talked about during our conversation will be in the show notes. That way you can pick up anything you missed the first time through. The easiest place to find those notes is at milesandpints.com. Thanks so much for listening to Miles and Pints, the Travel and Beer Podcast.
1: If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe so you can hear all of our new episodes as soon as they're released. Tell your friends and family about us so they can enjoy the show too, and please
0: take a few minutes to leave us a review on your favorite listening platform. In between episodes... You can get more travel and beer content by following at Miles and Pints on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. You can also stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash pints. And that's all we have for this episode. Until next time, we hope you find
1: yourselves a little bit of travel, a little bit of beer, and a whole lot of fun.